Hello, um, my name is Corbin Steiner. Um, I volunteer with the Next Gen Ministry here at Faith, both in the high school and the preschool. Um, and today I'll be reading Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house of the centurion, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, Do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, Not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is God's word. Thanks, Corbin. You know, one of the things that I love about the Bible is that it gets me. It really understands me. The more I I read the Word and dwell on it, the more I realize the Bible understands me better than I understand myself. And today's passage is no exception. In Luke 7, verses 1 through 10, Luke introduces a a category that we might call um, spiritual outsiders. What What a profound category for us to ponder. And some of you here today might consider yourselves to be spiritual outsiders. You might consider yourself a spiritual outsider for all different reasons. They might be valid or not, but you might say, well, I've I've not really gone to church much, or I haven't gone to church lately, or I haven't really gone to church at all. And when I I talk to Christians, you know, it seems like they just know everything about the Bible. I mean, they know where Malachi is and all these things. I don't even, you know, and, and they can just turn there and it's just intimidating you feel like, yeah, I've got all these disadvantages because I don't have what everybody else had. Or maybe you feel like you're a spiritual outsider because of your past. You might say, because of some of the things that I've done, or maybe some of the things that have been done to me, I just can't even imagine that Jesus would want anything to do with me. Or you might consider yourself a spiritual outsider for all sorts of other reasons. Whatever the case, I think that today in this passage, you will find great encouragement. You're going to find that being a spiritual outsider is not only not a liability, it may be one of your greatest assets. You, you may see things more clearly than the rest of us. And so if there are spiritual outsiders, there are also spiritual insiders. I would definitely be in that category, right? Many of you would as well. I mean, you grew up in church. You just know how churches work. You've read the Bible. You you study the Bible. You pray. You're in community with other people. And obviously, that's, that's nothing inherently wrong with that. That's a good thing. 
And yet today's passage implicitly has a warning for those of us who are spiritual insiders. And so we're going to talk about that as well. But again, I love that about the Bible. I need someone. I need God really to tell me what's true about myself so that I can turn and so that I can take the right path forward. And so today, as we begin a new sermon series in Luke 7 and 8, it's a series we're calling Understanding Jesus. And just like anybody, if you really want to relate properly to somebody, you need to understand who they are. Hearsay is not enough. Stereotypes are not enough. What you've heard or what you've thought about Jesus may or may not be accurate. It may be flat out wrong. And so if we want to relate properly to him, we really need to understand Jesus. And so these, these miracles and these teachings in Luke 7 and 8 really reveal some amazing things about who Jesus really is. So today we're going to begin by considering Luke 7, 1 through 10, and see specifically what it says about spiritual insiders and outsiders. We begin in verse 1. After Jesus had finished all, the, all his sayings, and he's referring to what Jesus, what's recorded in Luke chapter 6, that's known as the Sermon on the Plain. It has many of the same teachings as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. But after he finished all these things in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. So a centurion was a Roman soldier. He was, was over approximately 100, 100 troops. He was a, an officer. And uh, the Romans had been occupying Israel for about a century. And so they deployed these, these troops to different cities and towns, the major cities and towns across Israel. And this centurion would have been a very powerful, influential, he was also a wealthy man. And we learn in this passage that this, 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 this centurion was unbelievably exceptional. For starters, he was compassionate. He had this servant that he cared deeply about, and he was at the point of death. He was, he was about to die, and he cared about him. He valued him highly. And, and you don't get any sense that it was a selfish thing. Well, I don't want this servant to die because he brings me my coffee, because he does whatever I tell him to. No, it, it doesn't seem to be selfish. It seems like he legitimately cared about his servant. Verse 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus... This is an amazing thing. He, when he heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. Where would he get that idea? Well, if you read Luke chapter 4, you read that in Capernaum, in the synagogue, Jesus had healed a man who had an unclean spirit. And so, and we're also explicitly told that this report about Jesus went out to all the regions. And so, very likely, this centurion had heard about that miracle. Jesus healed the man. He valued his servant highly, so he sent the Jewish elders to ask him to come and heal his servant. He was a, he was a, a Gentile, but the elders of the Jews, they were the leaders in the Jewish community, and very likely he thought they would have more influence. Jesus was Jewish, and so they would be more persuasive. And uh, when you send somebody to, to, for a, to, to uh, ask something for, you send somebody that really appreciate you. That's what you do when you, when you want somebody to fill out a reference for you, right? You don't, you don't ask somebody who's going to say, well, I wouldn't hire the guy, but maybe you should give him a chance. You know, you ask somebody who says, no, this is a great guy. And the, the Jews, the elders of the Jews had no problem thinking of things 
why Jesus should come and do this miracle. Verse 4, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And so their appeal was, he's actually worthy for you to come and do this miracle. They gave two reasons. Number one, he loves our nation. And that's no small thing. You can imagine a a centurion deployed hundreds of miles away from home. It would be very natural for him to despise or even hate the nation that they had occupied, but not this man. He loved the Jewish nation. And number two, he had actually funded their synagogue. He he was wealthy. He had the, the resources to pay for this synagogue. Uh, it's, it's interesting the the temple in Jerusalem about 50 years earlier had been refurbished by Herod the Great. And so the Gentiles were fun, funding the buildings in which the Jews were worshiping, the temple in Jerusalem, the synagogue in Capernaum. And again, that's no small thing. Uh, not everyone with wealth uses their money for the good of others. And of course, it's possible to give so that you can get I'm going to do this for you, now you owe me. But we don't get any sense of that. We actually get the sense that this this centurion was legitimately a generous man. In verse 6, and uh, the more we read about him, the more impressive he becomes. In verse 6, we read this, and Jesus went with them. And then something interesting happens. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. So here we learn that this centurion was an incredibly thoughtful man. The more he thought about it, he said, maybe I've asked too much. Maybe I've troubled Jesus unnecessarily. And so he says, I'm not, I'm not worthy. You remember what the, the Jewish elders had said? He is worthy. His estimation of himself, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. And as we'll see, this wasn't just a Gentile being mindful of a Jew who would be defiled by going into his house. It was much, much deeper than that. It had to do with his understanding of the identity of Jesus, who Jesus was and what he was capable of. Verse seven, therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Now, where would he get that idea? That Jesus didn't even have to show up in person. He could speak and heal his, his servant. Well, again, if you read Luke 4, that's exactly what happened in the synagogue that he had funded, by the way. He had spoken and he had cast this, this unclean spirit out of the man. And here's what we read in, in Luke 4, 36. And they were all amazed Keep that word in mind. They were amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. So they were amazed that he spoke a word. He had authority and power and the unclean spirits had to obey him. When the centurion explains his reasoning, why Jesus could speak a word, he uses the exact same terms that we've just read in chapter 4. And so in verse 8, he says this, For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say, go, and he goes. 
I've got a friend in the army. I checked. This is the way it happens. He, he told me his, 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 his uh, commander didn't come to him and say, hey, um, I wonder if you, I know it's going to be inconvenient, but I wonder if you would consider going to Poland for nine months. Think about it and get back with me. No, he said, you're going, and that's where he is right now. He says, I go. I say, go, and he goes to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. They do think their, their words are powerful. And so the centurion's logic is because he's a man under authority. He can speak with authority and things happen. He speaks with the full authority of the Roman Empire. And so he commands his soldiers and his servants and they do what he says. He says, Jesus, I understand that you too are a man under authority. You are under the authority of God. And when you speak... You speak with the full authority of God himself. If you say a word, my servant will be healed, okay? And so he had this, he had this simple, childlike faith. Jesus, say the word, my servant will be healed. He believed Jesus had authority over sickness. Luke also tells us, as we mentioned, he had authority over unclean spirits. He had authority over the wind and the waves. He didn't negotiate. He just spoke and it happened, people noticed he had authority in his teaching. He taught in such a way that it penetrated to their hearts. And so Jesus had this, uh, this, this authority that amazed people. And in verse 9, we come to the high point of the passage. Jesus has not spoken yet, right? Uh, we know what the elders, Jewish elders, think about the centurion. We know what the centurion thought about himself. But what does Jesus Think about the centurion. Verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And so he marveled at the centurion. In other words, to say it, he was amazed at the centurion. There's only one other place where we're to- in the Gospels where we're told Jesus marveled. That's in Mark 6, 6, when he marveled at the unbelief of the people in his hometown. He, just, he was just staggered that they, they had such, uh, such a lack of faith. But here he marvels at the centurion. And, and what's very striking in the Gospel of Luke is that elsewhere, it's always that other people marveled at Jesus. Eight times we're told that people marveled at Jesus. They marveled at Jesus when he was 12 years old in the temple and he was asking these profound questions about the teachers. They marveled when he did a miracle. They marveled at his teaching. He had authority. And they marveled at the resurrection. But here, Jesus is the one who marveled. Consider the possibility that Jesus would marvel at you for the same reason he did for the centurion. Specifically, he marveled at the centurion because he was a Gentile that some understood something better than the, anyone in Israel, than the Jewish people. He marveled that an outsider understood something better than an insider. He marveled that he understood Jesus' authority. And did you notice what he labeled that? He labeled it faith. Faith is believing that Jesus has authority to speak and accomplish things. It's as if Jesus thought, finally, somebody who finally understands who I am and the authority that I have. 
And so he had this simple, childlike faith. And almost as an afterthought, Luke mentions in verse 10, and when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Of course they did, because Jesus spoke a word and the servant was healed. What an amazing narrative. What an amazing account. And so if we want to understand Jesus, we have to understand his authority. We have to believe that he has authority to do whatever he wants. In other words, we have to have faith. We have to believe that he has authority to act. Hebrews 11.6 is one of, one of the verses that just, just resonates and rings in my mind over and over. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. You can do a lot of things without faith. Pleasing God is not one of them. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Whoever comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. The centurion had faith. And so let's spend a few minutes uh, thinking about this in, what the centurion's experience means for spiritual outsiders and spiritual insiders. If you consider yourself to be a spiritual outsider, the experience of the centurion should fill you with courage. It should embolden you because the centurion's, uh, the centurion's experience confirms that being an outsider is not a liability. It confirms that if you have a past and you are dripping with shame and guilt, it is not a liability. Your lack of experience in the church your lack of knowledge about the Bible is not necessarily a liability. The issue is not whether you think that you are worthy or not. The issue is whether or not you understand the authority of Jesus. Whether you understand that he has the authority, the power to deal with the deepest need that you have. And whether you realize it or not, the deepest need you have is for forgiveness. You see, we, we all sin by, by nature and by choice. I mean, nobody has to teach us how to sin. We, we just do it naturally. We do it by nature and we do it by choice. And the reality is that nobody can get rid of their own sin. You can't work it off. You can't pay it off. You can never get rid of your own sin. But the miracles in the gospel, it's very explicit in Luke, the miracles in the gospel prove that Jesus, because he can do miracles that you can see, it means he can also do miracles that you cannot see. And so when he heals a person, it confirms that he can actually forgive sin, which you can't see. There's an account in, in chapter 5 where Jesus pronounced forgiveness. He said, he said to a man, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisee said, how can you say that? And so this is what we read in, in Luke 5, 24 but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. And so Jesus did something miraculous that they could see. He healed the man as evidence that he had done something miraculous that they couldn't see, namely forgiving a man. And so Jesus has authority to forgive sins. What's more... Jesus himself made that payment for your sin on the cross. We just sang three songs about that earlier. Jesus resolutely, Luke 9, 51, he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem knowing that that's where he would die on the cross. 
And so he willingly poured out his life on our behalf. And so if you believe that Jesus, because of his death and resurrection, he has this authority to forgive you of your sins, he's paid for your sins, you just confess it, you believe it, this simple childlike faith, and your sin will be wiped out. Sin is the thing that keeps you from experiencing God, from knowing God. Your sin is wiped out, and now you have this freedom, you have this fullness of relationship with God. It's just that simple, but it's just that profound. It's this wholehearted confidence in what Jesus has done. If you don't yet believe that Jesus has that type of authority, but you're open to believing, I would just, just encourage you, this is not something to put on the back burner. There, there's, there will be a day when this is the most important thing in your life. This is all you care about. Am I accepted by God? So put yourself in a place to learn about Jesus' authority. Keep coming and hearing the Word. Read the Bible. Read the Bible with a friend. If you have a Christian friend, and, and ask questions. Be curious. And if you don't have a friend like that, let us know. There are many people here at Faith that would love, people that are safe, that would love to read the Bible with you and talk with you about the Scriptures. Uh, Jesus said, seek and you will find. Many people here today would say, yeah, that, that's, that's me. I sought, and God let me find him. And so that's the, those that are spiritual outsiders. Secondly, uh, a few words to those of us who are spiritually insiders. Again, this, this is me. There's an implicit warning in this passage, isn't there? You probably noticed it. Jesus made the comment. He said, in all Israel, not in all of Israel, have I, have I found such faith that I see in this outsider. And so the, the Jews, the, the nation of Israel, they were spiritual insiders. They had every advantage. They had the Old Testament scriptures. They had the prophets. They had the covenants. Uh, they, had this, this, they, they knew the Bible. They went to church. They went to synagogue every week. They had this rich spiritual tradition. And yet almost all of them were lukewarm. Uh, almost none of them had this simple childlike faith. And for those of us who are spiritual insiders, something very similar can happen. It happens very easily. And so we all start out with this childlike faith. Jesus said, if you don't have the faith of a child, you don't enter the kingdom of heaven. And so if you're a believer, there was a time when you had this childlike faith. But what happens is we go from this simple childlike faith to this sophisticated, adult, grown-up faith where we no longer just say, yeah, I believe Jesus. You could speak the word and do it. But we live by probabilities. Or, or we, we kind of think, well, would, is, this, is it likely Jesus would do that? That's what I'm going to believe. And we kind of trust in ourselves if, if we're not careful. And so here's the question I'm going to be asking myself this week. I want to invite you to ask yourself this exact same question. Am I relating to Jesus as someone who has all authority? Is that the way I relate to him? Someone who has all authority and who is radically for me. It would be one thing if Jesus had all authority. What does that do for me? Well, it turns out he is radically for you. If you're in Christ, he is radically for you. He has done the most uh, profound, sacrificial thing he possibly could. You can't, you can't question whether or not he's for you. And so am I relating to him as that? And that's a powerful combination. He has all authority and he's for me. 
Just a couple of examples. This applies to every area of following Christ. But think about prayer. If we understand that Jesus has all authority, I mean, really, we won't pray these half-hearted, lame prayers that we think will happen anyway. We, we don't protect ourselves. No, we take risks. We pray, we pray these bold, faith-filled prayers in Jesus' name. And we trust God to answer it according to his wisdom. So we're not putting our faith in our prayers. I prayed this and it didn't happen. God must not have authority. God must not be for me. No, we, we just see so little. It's like looking through a cardboard tube. And there's so much more. We trust God for the outcomes. And so it'll affect the way we pray if we really relate to Jesus as one who has all authority and who's for me. But think about the spiritual battle. Paul told us that in this world, we're not fighting against flesh and blood. We're actually fighting against spiritual forces of evil. He actually says authorities in Ephesians 6. But he also says that Jesus has been raised up and he is seated at the right hand of God far above all powers and rulers and authorities. And we have been raised up and seated with Christ. And so in the spiritual battle, we're we're fighting from a place of security. We're fighting from a place of authority because we're in Christ. Is that the way we approach temptations? Is that the way we approach discouragements? Is that the way we approach our anxieties and our fears? Or do we basically act like God doesn't exist and we do the best with what we have? This passage challenges me. It challenges me to ask the question, am I relating to Jesus as one who has all authority and who is radically for me? And so, God, we're praying that this week that we would experience you as you really are. I pray for those here today who might consider themselves to be spiritual outsiders. I pray, God, that you would give them this hunger to know you, give them this faith to look beyond their circumstances, look beyond the things that that are challenges, legitimately challenges and stumbling blocks. I pray that they would see Jesus as he really is, that they would know that he, he loves people who come to him with this simple faith and welcomes them fully. And God, for those who know you already, I pray, God, we would, we would relate to Jesus as he is, as one with all authority. God, show us our blind spots. Show us our lack of faith. May you not be amazed at our unbelief, but may you be amazed that we get it and that we understand who you are, your power, your authority, that you are radically for us. In Jesus' name, amen.